Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Emily, and I use pronouns like they, them, theirs. And I'm Pastor Kay, and my pronouns are she, her. In this episode, we'll discuss the third Sunday after Pentecost, also known as Lectionary 11, also known as Proper 6, which this year falls on June 13th. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. So our deep dive for today is on imagery in the Bible, or metaphors, or simile, or what even is literalism. There is a ton and a half of imagery used in the Bible. And one of the things that I always like to point out whenever we're talking about biblical imagery is the reality of biblical literalism. And the impossibility, actually, of true biblical literalism. So we probably all know people who say that they take the Bible literally. Literally? Literally. <laughs> so in kind of a flashback to Holy Trinity Sunday, we heard Nicodemus taking Jesus' words about being born from above literally. His response was, how can I climb back into the womb to be born again? Ouch. Right? That sounds really, really painful. But also, he was taking Jesus' words literally, at face value, no metaphors, no imagery, no simile, literally interpreting Jesus' words. And that's not how Jesus intended them. The Bible itself, similarly, is not intended to be taken literally. It is not supposed to be a historical account. It is not supposed to be a literal truth. If it were literally true, Nicodemus would have been right, I don't want to think about that, and Jesus would be a shepherd, not a carpenter, and we would literally be sheep. And I don't know about you, but I do not provide my own wool. <laughs> so for those who have perhaps forgotten their middle school English class, a simile is when you say that one thing is like another thing. Like in our gospel reading for today, when Jesus says, With what can we compare the reign of God, or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Also, similes. You can tell a simile. This is a trick I learned in my middle school English class. You can tell that it's a simile because it has the word like or as. It is like a mustard seed. Yes. Cheat sheets. Life hacks. Life hacks. Grammar hacks. Gra grammar hacks. Language hacks? Sure. I don't know. <laughs> a metaphor, on the other hand, is when thing A is said to be thing B. Like in John 6, when Jesus says that he is the bread of life. Mm, yes. Which, don't forget, we've mentioned it once or twice, but this summer we'll have a special bread of life series. We're not sure what we're calling it yet. We've got lots of great options. Yes. And it will be safe for any of our listeners who require a gluten-free diet. Yes. All celiacs welcome. Yes. We may talk about gluten, but we won't force feed you any gluten at all. Because we are in favor of consent on this podcast. And also, we're a podcast. We're not feeding you anything. Except ideas and revolution. Yes. <laughs> but join us for a series that may or may not be called A Friend in Need. Wink, wink. Oh, goodness. <laughs> We're going to have to fill that with so many bread puns. It's going to be awesome. 
I'm also going to spend the entire series just snacking continually through all of the episodes because I get oh, so sure. hungry when we talk about that. I'm sure I was going somewhere with this before we got into that whole sidetrack. But You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> there are also some edge cases in the Bible that aren't quite either, and I tend to refer to these as just general poetic license. For example, I kind of have trouble calling Psalm 23 a metaphor when it says the Lord is my shepherd, because that's describing a job that God has, a thing that God does. Like, I, I don't entirely know that that's a full on metaphor, because I'm not sure that that's a thing that God actually isn't, you know? I mean, I kind of think of it as a metaphor, but I could see how... It's a little metaphorical, it's but not, it's not. Yeah. Like, like describing God as a shepherd, which is a job that a person can have, and God is technically a person, again, remember our Holy Trinity episode, mm -hmm. where we talk about that, as opposed to, say, calling God a mama bear, which happens uh, somewhere in the Hebrew scriptures. And I... God. Yeah, God is a mama bear. That is totally true. But also, God is probably not a bear. Which reminds me of a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon strip where Calvin objects to whatever it is that his mother has cooked for dinner that night by screaming, What if we get up to heaven and find out God is a giant chicken, huh? What then? <laughs> However, I suppose that we can actually also accuse Psalm 23 of the ancient christian heresy of modalism because describing god by what god does does not fully describe the differences of the persons of the trinity mm. so. so it's a good thing that psalm 23 isn't actually describing the trinity yes <laughs> very yes. true describing the things god does is fine it's just when that becomes the Trinitarian thing that then we call it modalism and many people call it heresy and other people call it diverse diversity in theology. Sure. I think the point of modalism is that that shouldn't be the only way that you distinguish the persons of the Trinity. Like that's sure. actually the root of what's the problem with it. Really any way that we describe the three persons of the Trinity shouldn't be the only way. Yes. But we're wandering into a previous deep dive instead of sticking with this one. Although, yeah. goodness knows, trying to explain the Trinity, you've got to use a lot of poetic language for that. Because let me tell you, the literal language isn't going to work. So, mm -hmm. And we'll include a link in our episode description so you can go back and refresh your memory of Holy Trinity Sunday. Or if you just want to tie your brain in a knot, which is pretty much what that does for me. God, or what God does, is not the only place where similes and metaphors are used in the Bible, of course. In our reading from Ezekiel today, Judah's royal family is described as a cedar tree, as a metaphor. Probably, you know, the family wasn't actually a bunch of Ents. I don't know. I would like to meet a family of Ents. I mean, that would explain why so many people were so terrified of David, I guess? Like, that, that would be fair, but also... God is the creator, so Jesus being an ant really keeps, like, gardener. Mary thought Jesus was a gardener, so True. the ants are like the gardeners of the trees. However, everyone did seem to be very surprised when David danced down the street while being mostly naked, and I don't remember the ants wearing a lot of clothes, so that would possibly True. argue against it. Mm, <laughs> we'll see. Maybe he was just, like, cleaned off the moth. True. Very possible. Shed his leaves for the fall. <laughs> Right. That makes perfect sense. 
Speaking mm-hmm. of finding entirely new heresies that no one has ever tried before. Yay! <laughs> also, in Song of Songs, there are several parts which describe the author's lover as like a gazelle or a sheep or a variety of other options, not all of which are actually animals, come to think of it, but probably not, you know, people. So, One of my favorite uses of imagery in the Bible is when God is described as like a mother hen in Matthew 23 or in Luke 13. I love that one too. I do love that one, and it is very sweet, and I have to tell you that my association mentally with it is not entirely sweet because it also reminds me of a family story where an uncle of mine got what was coming to him when he bothered a hen. Don't mess with hens. They are impressively scary and will try to kill you if necessary, even if they do seem silly or mostly harmless in general. Do you have a favorite use of imagery from the Bible, Emily? Why, yes, I do. I have many, but uh, one of the ones that I love to go back to is from John chapter 1, when we meet Jesus as the Word made flesh. Yes. Which, so... The word, or logos in Greek, connects with not only is the imagery of Jesus as the spoken word, but also connects with the Hebrew Sophia, which is wisdom, woman wisdom, who we get a lot of in Proverbs in particular. And so that sort of imagery and the gender bendiness of the imagery always makes me really excited. And then we get that that the word comes and dwells among us, or as it is also frequently interpreted from the Greek, that the word pitches a tent among us. And I love that imagery Yes. on a number of levels, some of which are appropriate for children and some of which are not. <laughs> and actually, if we're going to make a nerdy reference in regards to Jesus as the incarnate word, I think the book The Phantom Tollbooth comes to mind which has many incarnate words and phrases uh, in it because they all sort of come to life in interesting ways. Mm. Or the movies Jumanji. Ooh, yeah. You just have to say Jumanji three times and there you go. Or Beetlejuice, for that matter. (laughs) Ooh, yeah. And the other thing that our discussion of poetic language in the Bible reminds me of today is a comment from one of the Anne of Green Gables books. And I have to say, I don't entirely remember which one, but it's definitely one of the later ones because she's talking to her seven-year-old semi-adopted brother, Davy, and he doesn't show up for quite a while. He is not in the series, the TV series that was on Netflix for a while, Anne with an E. Uh, I I do like that show. I'm actually talking about the original books by Ella Montgomery. But Davy just wasn't in the TV series, and I never read the books. Well, that was wrong of them, and I hope you get around to them, because I do like them. But there is this lovely conversation that she has with Davy. In the 1800s, there was a whole argument about whether or not Christians were allowed to read fiction, because fiction was understood to essentially be lying and lying is wrong, right? Fiction never mm-hmm. actually happened, so is it a lie? And it's sort of danced around in the books, I think, partly because the author did not really want to get into it with her readers, and, you know, she was writing fiction. Uh, I know, I so, was like, and she was writing fiction, like, the whole thing was fiction. But An argument about fiction in a fictional work would be exactly. pretty meta. But at one point, Anne has this conversation with this seven-year-old at the time, Davy, about fairy tales. 
and when she says that she's including stories like Hans Christian Andersen or uh, the Brothers Grimm or anything like that, not just ones strictly about the semi-magical world in the Celtic or British tradition, but like any kind of fairy tale. The thing about fairy tales is that they may not have literally happened, but they do contain truth. They always contain some sort of message that is applicable to real life and generally, you know, stuff works that way. It Moral is not quite the word I want to use for it because it's not usually a uh, you should do this or something bad will happen or you're a horrible person, that kind of thing. Um, it's more along the lines of uh, if you are kind to strangers, that will probably in the end work out well for you, that sort of thing. Uh, and so they contain a lot of truth. And so uh, she has this surprisingly nuanced conversation with a seven-year-old uh, about what does truth really mean. Uh, and I've always liked that conversation. So just because the Bible does not 100% only describe things that literally happened or are literally true doesn't mean that the Bible itself isn't true. Frequently, the deeper truths are not the ones that are literally or factually true. Yes, and if we try to reduce it to that, we lose a lot. Mm -hmm. So don't get lost. Have a poetic imagination. Yes! As we dive into our readings for this episode, our first reading is from Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 22 through 24. God declares the creation of a new sprig from a cedar tree, the symbol of Judah's royal family. This new tree will welcome all kinds of birds to its branches, symbolizing the new member of that family that will rule over all creation. So a theme that is evident in this passage is the theme of new growth, right? God is talking about the new growth of the sprig from a cedar tree and the new growth in the royal family of Judah. But it also reminded me of the end of Battlestar Galactica when finally the humans and Cylons together find not Earth, but another place that they call Earth with people without very much technology who are just starting to be using tools more and to be more verbal with each other. And it is this new opportunity, not only for the community that is already on this planet, but also these humans and Cylons who are moving to this planet to try again, to try to be and do better and to grow as communities and as a society into new ways of being, which is kind of a beautiful thing. And there's like the final scenes of them in like grasslands and beautiful places. Awesome. In verse 22, we read, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of a cedar. I will set it out. I will break off a tender one from the topmost of its young twigs. I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. So, I've recently been working my way through the October Day books by Seanan McGuire. And the audiobooks are fantastic, by the way. And... In the second book, we meet April, a dryad whose tree was destroyed by condo developers. A dryad is a magical being who basically sort of lives in and sort of is a tree. Like, oh, they have a special okay. relationship with a particular tree, and their life is tied to it. And so when her tree Ooh. is killed, she is not quite killed, but she is definitely about to die. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, the other dryads in the neighborhood whose trees were also destroyed by the condo developers uh, basically give up. But she grabs her biggest branch uh, that she could find mm -hmm. and she ran. And eventually she finds a woman named January 
uh, who are, didn't are know they all named after months. That later turns into a plot point, but we don't know why yet. Okay. Technically speaking, I don't know why yet, except that the other thing about this series of books, uh, I do very much enjoy it, but I recently realized that I only have access to about half of the audiobooks, and mm. reading the book as a like ebook instead will be fine, except that it uses a lot of Celtic uh, lore in it, and that means that none of the words are pronounced at all like they're spelled according to the rules I'm used to. So I have actually <laughs> started going online and looking up some of the stuff so that I will be able to recognize the books when I get to the point that I don't have access to the audiobooks anymore and I'll be able to know what she's talking about, which is a long story. But so April grabbed the biggest grant she could and she eventually found a woman named January. And yes, they're named after months and that will be explained later. And January knew nothing about trees. January was a computer person. And so instead, she saved April by making her the first cyber dryad in the universe, mm -hmm. as far as they know, uh, magically planting her branch in a server. And so April changed, but she also lived. She survived. Uh, and this makes me think of how when God takes that sprig from the cedar tree and plants it on a mountain, that reminds us that Judah's royalty, what it looked like and how being royalty worked, changed with Jesus. Just like how, it, of course, a tree is going to change if you move it from sea level to a mountaintop. Right. Also, Ezekiel was not talking about Jesus. No. Ezekiel was talking about just like the future of Judah's royal family, which also changes. Yes. Right? It, Significantly. As Christians, we understand it changing particularly with Jesus. But every new generation changes. You can look at, you know, Prince Harry and Princess Meghan. Yes. Duke and Duchess, whoever they are. They're not royal anymore, but they are royal. I don't know. <laughs> they're changing from the generation before that, from the generation before that. So, Absolutely. All the changes. In verse 23, in the first half, God says, On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, the sprig of cedar. And first of all, as a Coloradan who grew up in the mountains, there is such a thing as above tree line. Yes. So presumably, in this case, God is talking about some smaller mountains that don't have a tree line yet, because if God planted a sprig of cedar above tree line, that sprig of cedar is not actually going to grow. Except that this is God. And if God so wants it is... to grow, then I think it can grow. Okay, except that God has created rules, like, you know, science, that govern the universe, and God tends to follow God's own rules. Except for when God doesn't. Like, for example, the resurrection. And yes, possibly but Jericho. Like... Okay, yes. But... <laughs> Not actually clear on Jericho and making a sprig of cedar grow on top of a mountaintop does not seem like the kind of cosmic thing that God actually would like break the rules for. Just saying, I mean, don't go trying this thinking it's going to work. Jesus cursed a fig tree. So like maybe God planted the cedar tree and made it live in advance because God knew that Jesus would eventually kill another, another tree to sort of even things out. That is not how it works. And also, this is not literal. God is not actually planting a sprig of cedar on a mountain. God is metaphorically planting a sprig of cedar on a mountain. Were you there for the deep dive? I'm pretty sure you're the one that talked about this, Kay. I wish that I could share the look on Emily's face right now with you all, but it is priceless. So I am sure that it is. Yes. Anyway, anyway... 
Don't grow mountains above. Don't don't <laughs> grow mountains above tree line. Don't go. Don't try and grow trees above mountain lines. Don't try to grow trees on mountains above tree line. But what this actually made me think of in the like having like the top of a tree, the top of a mountain, and I actually pictured like a stump of a tree because I was sure in my head I was connecting it with the stump of Jesse. But planting a sprig on top of a mountain reminded me of. In Moana, each chief on the island puts a rock on top of the next, on top of all of the pile of rocks of the chiefs before them that's at the highest point on the island. So each chief, the island grows a little bit and is a little bit higher. And that's what Moana is supposed to do next. And what she ends up doing when she goes out to be a sea voyager or a wayfinder is that she actually puts the seashell that the ocean presented to her um, she puts that seashell on top of the rocks instead of a rock itself and so that was just like this beautiful little thing i do love it in the second half of verse 23 we read under it every kind of bird will live in the shade of its branches with nest-winged creatures of every kind okay this might seem like a little bit of a jump but recently i learned a new keyboard shortcut which i am finding especially useful for making this podcast as a part of preparing for each episode i copy paste bits and pieces of the verses that we're referencing into our planning doc and the planning document has a very specific uh, formatting setup in order to help emily and i keep our places and know where we are and know what's going to happen next and all that and constantly reformatting text is really irritating and takes forever and so recently i learned this new keyboard shortcut that makes it much easier because if you're pasting text into a document and instead of using the keyboard shortcut control v which is the shortcut that i grew up knowing for pasting stuff from one thing to another mm -hmm. uh, if instead you use the shortcut control shift v when you paste it it adopts the formatting of the new document that you're putting it into, and it makes your life so much easier because you don't have to fight with it all the time. I did not know that this was new information for you, or I would have told you about it years ago. <laughs> okay, that, that would have been helpful. My bad. <laughs> but it, it is still a snazzy shortcut. And it reminds me mm -hmm. of when you take a bird from one place and you try to put it in another place, you're going to have to make sure that it can adapt to, to the new setting in order for it to be able to stay there instead of choosing to, say, fly back to its old home, which I guess mm -hmm. does also seem appropriate for Moana, Moana and her people. So I was going to say that yeah. fits really well with Moana. Yeah. In verse 24, the second part of verse 24 God says, I bring low the high tree, I make high the low tree. And this verse in some ways is actually like pretty out of place because the cedar, which is the main imagery used here, is not a low tree. Like it grows pretty big based on like by Google's quick five second Google search at least. American cedars do. I do remember we've had a conversation previously about how there are different kinds of mustard plants, which we may get into later. And there are some mustard plants which are quite short and some mustard plants which are quite tall. And the big ones live in Israel. And I don't know mm -hmm. if the cedars that you would find in the Israel area are quite as large as the American ones that we have. Perhaps. But the actual goal, right, this is one of those examples where what we didn't talk about quite in our deep dive, but is very much true is metaphors and imagery inevitably always fall short yes 
we use them because they help us understand particularly God, but also the things that we read about in the Bible and the things of our faith. We use metaphors, we use similes, we use imagery because it helps us understand better. But also, none of them give us the complete picture. And that's part of what it is to be human. We get different ways of connecting and learning, and ultimately, we're never going to get the complete picture because we're only human. In and fact, okay. to use the phrase fall short is to use poetic imagery because, of course, it's not like the phrase is actually, you know, being mm -hmm. thrown from one person to another and not quite getting there all the way or like it's, you know, mm -hmm. a, a certain Idioms. height and doesn't actually have the height to make it to uh, get things off of tall shelves. But yeah. Yes. Idioms are also great. True. And in the next reading, we'll talk about puns. <laughs> I love puns. In case you didn't get it, I seriously love puns. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> yes, I love puns too. Our second reading for today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Our second reading for today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 17. However, some congregations may choose to omit verses 11 through 13. Paul calls Christians to live not by society's rules or traditions, but according to their faith, seeing each other as God sees them. So one of the themes for this passage is transformations. Ha! Ah! Get it? Transformation. <laughs> Puns. I told you it would come up. So I was thinking about the different transformations in this passage and the ways that Paul describes changes happening in people and it really reminded me as a trans person of the ways that trans people change and yet we are still the same yes. person right and I think a lot of trans people have this approach when they come out to loved ones of these are my this is my new name and these are my pronouns now but I'm still your same child sibling parent friend Yes. And I think there, there are ways that that's helpful and there are ways that that's harmful, right? There is, there is a difference. Like you're, we, when trans people come out and we want different pronouns or different name or whatever the case may be, it's because there is a difference that maybe has been inside us the whole time and we just yes. haven't been able to express it. But there is a difference and people need to know and respect and honor that difference. Yes. But it is like... It is one of those kind of a chicken or the egg things of is it we as trans people who change and then become trans when we come out? Or is it how others around us perceive us that is actually the thing that changes or transforms? And I think that Paul also, there's a little bit of hinting at this in this passage of Paul talks definitely talks about God transforming humans. But there's also this question of, or is God doing the internal work and it's the way that others perceive recognize us. or perceive us that changes? Yeah. So good. I think the closest to that that I've ever personally experienced is when I learned that I had ADHD and I started telling other people that. And it changed their perception of me, but it also changed their perception of my past. Because mm -hmm. I've always had ADHD. It's just I didn't used to know that, and neither did everyone else. And yeah. so suddenly a lot of things made sense. Yeah. It's like, oh. But no. I didn't change 
it's just that yeah not my mm-hmm. understanding of myself and their understanding of me changed yeah I've always had certain mannerisms and proclivities and liked particular things sure but I didn't have language for it right and so it wasn't until a few years ago that I started identifying as non-binary and agender and yeah trans and actually my understanding of myself as demisexual pretty much the exact same thing happened so in verse six we read so we are always confident even though we know that while we are at home in the body we are away from god this kind of duality and somewhat false binary uh reminded me of the doctor who some of the doctor who aliens so there are a variety of different aliens throughout doctor who who are make their homes in human bodies so the carrionites from the shakespeare episode are one of them that look human and then the reality is that they actually aren't the saturnins which is in the vampire episode so they appear to be vampires because they have this thing that like creates a different image for people and then the tenza which is like from the dollhouse episode with the kid who had the nightmares and so it's just these different yeah. Characters that for, at the beginning of the movie are at home in bodies, but are actually like not at home in bodies. They, that's actually like being away from who they actually are. Yeah. Or the people from Raxacoroco Fallopatorius, the lizard people with the skins, the, the people skins. Oh, yeah. In the end that's of the, the one I was. That's the one I was trying to think of, and I couldn't remember who they were, and they didn't come up in a Google search. I'm just really impressed that I managed to pronounce Raxacoracophalopatorius correctly without having, you know, seen that episode in a couple of years. Yeah, and on your first try. And on your second try. (laughs) Very impressive. That was the ones that I was most thinking of, though, because I was like, and then they just, like, zip off the skins and they're at home in their own bodies instead of being away in human bodies. Exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. In verse 10, we read, For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I would say that Paul is not actually trying to delete grace from the universe here. Uh, Well, this time, you know, I'm not saying he never tries to do that. But but if you're going to receive grace, doesn't it make sense for you to know what you're receiving grace for? Like, can you really be healed of the harm that you've done if you don't know what harm you have done? Mm. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that that would work out well. So we're informed of the consequences of what we've done, as the verse says, and then grace. Yay. So is this the, like, first use of the law or the second use of the law? I did not do that much prep for this episode. <laughs> I don't know that it's so much about the use of the law as it is, like, can you fix something if you don't know what's broken? Can you be fixed of something if you don't know what's broken? Yeah, I think that's the second use of the law to say, like, have, like, to make us realize what we've done wrong. The first use is to make us not do bad things. Second use is to help us realize what we've done wrong so that we can repent and appreciate the grace that God gives us that much more. Yeah. Yeah, because if you, you know, somehow hurt your friend and you apologize for it, but you don't really know what it was that hurt them about what you did, you're very likely going to do it again. Now, if we're talking about the judgment seat of Christ at the end of all things after all of our lives are over, that's probably not going to be a problem. At least one would hope. But still, it can you really fix something if you don't know what's actually wrong? Mm-hmm. And shout out to Pace Warfield May, who is 
a guest with Joe as and his co-host of the Horror Nerds at Church podcast for teaching me about Luther's uses of the law better than any of my seminary professors. Shh, don't tell Dr. Hendel. <laughs> I did not have Dr. Hendel for what that's worth. So I know, because we went to different seminaries. <laughs> yes. Which is probably for the best. This is unlike in The Good Place, where once you're dead, your quote-unquote score for the good and bad that you've done is set, and you can't change it, and you're basically stuck with whatever your fate is. Which is really unfortunate. Yeah, and, like, doesn't work out well for a bunch of people, and... In verse 11, we read, Therefore, knowing the fear of God, we try to persuade others. And actually, like, throughout this passage... While I was reading it, I just kept thinking of D&D. Yeah. I think because one of my D&D campaigns is over and the other one, like, we didn't have everybody, so we just hung out this week, you know, on Zoom, like you do, hashtag pandemic living. Sure. And so then I kept picturing it as, like, okay, and then we roll a persuasion check and add this <laughs> and bardic inspiration and roll with advantage or, like... The dexterity checks for walking by faith and not by sight and yeah. stuff. So now I'm just going to like D&D the whole Bible, which I actually want to run a campaign based on biblical things anyway. But yeah. I'm now trying to figure out how you would figure out the stats for the bears that Elijah summons to murder the children. But <laughs> that's probably a little off topic. Fantastic. And then in the first half of verse 16, we read, From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. So the therefore in this verse is saying that because Christ died for us, we can't use human standards to judge one another anymore. Uh, how rich or what gender or race a person is or other human created rules of who matters or who doesn't or who matters more no longer apply to Christians. We are all equal. Much like how in the 1964 Godzilla movie, Ghidorah, the Three-Headed Monster, Godzilla, Mothra, and Rodan have to put aside their differences and work together to defeat the much more dangerous Ghidorah. I love the yeah. 1960s Japanese Godzilla movies. They are fantastic. The English versions are terrible and therefore hilarious. So Yes. I do not know Godzilla, nor do I dive deep into Godzilla. That one is particularly fantastic in terms of the English version being so bad it's hilarious. Okay. My other big favorite is Godzilla versus the sea monster, but they play a game of catch at one point with a very large rock. Mostly they're trying to kill each other, but it really looks like they're playing catch. That's fantastic. Our gospel reading for this episode is Mark chapter 4 verses 26 through 34. Jesus shares two parables describing the reign of God. It is like scattering seeds on the ground, not knowing which will grow, and like a tiny mustard seed that grows into an enormous shrub. So one of the themes that comes up in this passage is that Jesus apparently is choosing Amity as his faction from the Divergent books. Amity are the ones that grow things and talk about the growth and the peace and possibilities of everything. Awesome. And this is partly, as we talked about in the deep dive, the imagery that Jesus uses, right? If you're around plants and earth and growing things all the time, that's the imagery we're going to use. If you're around sheep all the time, you use sheep imagery. But you can kind of tell some of who Jesus is trying to get to. Um, or perhaps the gospel writers are trying yes. to get to by what sort of imagery they're using at different points. 
come to think of it, I guess I'm a little surprised that Jesus didn't use more carpentry imagery choices, but I suppose he wouldn't always have been talking to carpenters. So you're right, it was probably chosen based on who they're talking to. Ideally, that's how we all talk, so that the people we're talking to understand us. Yeah. In verse 27, we read, And the seed would sprout and grow. The person who planted it does not know how. So I have explained before that I am not personally very good at gardening, but I do know a lot of gardeners. And in terms of how hobbies go, I've always been kind of struck by gardening as being a little odd in that, yes, there are many successful gardeners who have intentionally studied and read and talked to other gardeners and worked at it and tried many different things and wrote, written things down for what worked and what didn't and all that in order to become successful gardeners. But I also seem to run into a fair number of people who are considered successful gardeners by other people who who don't so much do that. They really more along the lines of just adopting the let's see what happens now approach. Like they'll do a little trial and error, but otherwise it, it's not about working at it like they do the work of putting the garden in, but it's not about a scientific method kind of approach. It's just more of a let's throw the spaghetti at the wall and see what happens <laughs> kind of thing. And yet some of them have really, I don't know if it's enormous luck, but lots of success, definitely. Uh, some people just, it works out that way for them. I guess that also probably depends on what your definition of successful is. But gardening is one of those hobbies where you can have a lot of success with it without necessarily spending years to like achieve excellence. I mean, some people. I just yes. planted. I just planted my basil and oregano. This is the third time I'm planting oregano since Ash Wednesday. Oh, I had goodness. like seeds that kind of sprouted, but I didn't bury them in the dirt, so they didn't have to work as hard. So I think right. that was the problem. The first, well, the first time I was like gone, and so they dried up. The second time, I didn't bury them quite well enough. I think this time. The third time... I think this is actually starting to turn into another biblical parable about planting seeds. The four different kinds of soil. Perhaps. It was all the same pot. Ah. The third time, there's one that's growing, so I planted in two other spots. But then, but I planted, like, a whole bunch of oregano in different pots, a whole bunch of basil, and now they're outside so that even if I'm not here, they can potentially get some rain. Sure. Here's hoping. I just love to have lots of pesto. (laughs) And I had a great basil experiment last year, and then not only like half of my basil came in, and it was never enough to really make good pesto in the quantities I needed in. Yeah, and I mean, if you plant, like the plants mint or rhubarb are both known in some areas as being almost impossible to kill. But if you plant them in areas that really don't suit that plant, they will die immediately. But if you've ever seen mint or rhubarb try to take over someone's yard, or in my case, try to destroy a shed in the backyard, uh, that was the rhubarb, not the mint. I was going to say, I haven't known rhubarb to take over. Oh, oh no. In many parts of where I've lived in Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, and I suppose also in Wisconsin, but slightly to a lesser degree, rhubarb, if you leave it alone and you don't prune it extensively, uh, will grow to be taller than I am and possibly try to destroy a shed. So, so why would you not prune it? How do you how do you 
harvested. So, sometimes rhubarb just grows wild, and like you don't necessarily realize it's there if you don't wander I mean, back to that part of the yard before. I would it do it on purpose. Oh my gosh, I have that. this recipe for rhubarb sauce that's so tasty. I'm I'm not saying I don't like rhubarb, but like rhubarb also rhubarb. sometimes it's your landlord's responsibility to take care of it and not yours, and. Well, also, rhubarb has a fairly short life for, you know, where you can harvest it. And then after that, it's just, you know, hacking at it with a machete and you're never going to be able to eat it anyway. But What? You and I have very different experiences with rhubarb. I well, haven't actually grown it. I've just, like, harvested it from other th- people. That might explain why. <laughs> I mean, it's been in their gardens. Like, I've been the one to pick it, but... Yes. Okay. I think we're off topic for the 47th time. But um, the, the thing about rhubarb is that... There's a time when you you harvest it and it's wonderful, and then after that, much like say apples, it will go kind of mealy and seedy, mm. uh, especially once it gets like really big and thick, and you get those really enormous stalks of it, um, which are the kind that tend to try to eat your backyard sheds. You, I mean, you probably could eat it, but I wouldn't really want to. So gotcha. There was a rhubarb festival near where I was when I was in Minnesota. It went one year. It was quite fun. Great. I like rhubarb. I'm now thinking of the time when my dad had rhubarb growing in his backyard, and he loved it, but he also knew how much work it took to, like, keep it from taking over the yard. And my grandmother used to always come over and take some, and one year she said, you know what, why don't I just start growing my own rhubarb? And he tried to warn her. He did. But three years later, she was complaining about how it was trying to take over her backyard (laughs) because she didn't want to do the work of hacking at it either. So... (laughs) is a tricky plant i suppose any plant given the right conditions could be right but like i said earlier if you plant rhubarb or mint in the wrong place it will still die like they're not actually impossible to kill they are they are just very very fond of some very very common conditions yeah just be super careful with mint because mint really is a weed yeah and prolific when it yeah. is yeah speaking of weeds yeah verses 31 and 32 we hear about the mustard seed which is quite famous in Christian circles and biblical circles, but did you know that the mustard seed is, in fact, not the smallest of all seeds? Speaking of which, I just planted a smaller seed. You know what it is? Oregano. Oregano (laughs) is smaller than mustard. Oregano is, like, almost microscopic. It's teeny, teeny, tiny seeds. Cool. But mustard seed is a weed, right? Like, you plant it, and then it grows like mint or like glitter. I actually one time <laughs> preached a fantastic sermon on the like one of the mustard seed passages, and I talked about the reign of God being like m- like glitter, and I made a mess. I was doing pulpit supply, and I made a mess in the sanctuary. I didn't make a huge mess, but I like gave every kid glitter in the children's sermon. And all of and the parents hated you. <laughs> actually, no, they okay. loved it, and like I had people like a year later who came up to me and were like you did that glitter sermon and they loved it and they like would occasionally glimpse glitter and then it become glitter becomes a reminder of the reign of god that it gets out of out of your control real fast because in fact you cannot control god yeah thank goodness Mm -hmm. in verse 32 we read yet when it is sown it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs so mustard is a shrubbery so does that mean that if you were challenged by, say, the Knights of Knee, you could provide a mustard plant and they would be satisfied? I because was it wondering would be a about that, actually, too. I think so. Monty Python is part of a steady diet, people. It, absolutely. 
In verse 34, we read, Jesus did not speak to them, the crowd, except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. Well, A, that seems a little bit unfair, but yeah. also parables are riddles. So it's another way of using imagery and using metaphors and similes to not explain everything, but to make people think. Parables are supposed to be tricky, are supposed to be riddles, are supposed to make us think. They're not supposed to, they don't have clear answers. But, so that was reminding me of, of course, the Riddler in Batman, but also in The Hobbit between Bilbo and Gollum when Bilbo finds the ring and is going through a test of riddles with Gollum to see if he gets away free. And he does. He wins the riddle test because Gollum doesn't guess that the ring is in his pocket. Yeah. And while the entire Bible might not be one giant parable, I would say that, like a parable, look, a simile, it is not necessarily easily understood on the first pass. Very true. Lots of passes. Yeah. Lots of people. And it's understood better with more people and more brains. That's part of the gift of diversity. The more brains we have and the more people who think in a variety of ways and have a variety of different life experiences, the more likely we are to come up with brilliant answers and ideas. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss the nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the fourth Sunday after Pentecost. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at N-E-R-D-S-A-T-C-H-U-R-C-H or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our full guest episodes and interviews, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerds at church. We hope Patreon can help us get our episodes transcribed for those who need or prefer that. Though if you want to help us with transcripts, let us know via email or social media. As the ancient Christian said, Pops Vobiscum. Vobiscum.